Hey, what's up guys and welcome back to another episode of the 2020 podcast. I hope you are all well and had a good week. So today's episode comes under the category of things that maybe that we wish we did know but we don't know that would help us in our everyday life. And this is on flashing lights and floaters. So let's get into it. It's the 2020 podcast. So the reason why I have chosen this topic is because flashing lights and floaters are something that as optometrists we come across pretty much every day or definitely every other day. I find I always have a patient who has flashing lights or floaters and it's really important to be able to differentiate when you're going to dilate and when you're not going to dilate, particularly if you run a busy clinic because if you are going to be spending a lot of time with a lot of patients, your clinic gets pushed back and it's not helpful. So Another reason why I decided to do this is because I've started working in a practice as a newly qualified that has a MEX contract. So a MEX contract is minor eye condition contract that some stores can have with um, the NHS. So the NHS will fund these stores to see patients that would be seen in hospital to reduce the weight load on hospital eye service. Um, And obviously flashing lights and floaters comes up a lot in this MEX clinic and I wanted to be able to make sure that when I am looking for flash notes and floaters that I know what I'm looking for because I've never actually seen a retinal tear break hole lesion whatever whatever blah 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 and sometimes I run this MEX clinic by myself and it's really scary and my biggest fear in life is missing a retinal detachment and then getting sued by the GOC because I mean, that's just not on anyone's to-do list, is it? So I did a training video or I did some like e-learning on the Optometry Today website with the ophthalmologist Cam Balligan. He's a vitreoretinal retinal surgeon and he did a video on flashing lights and floaters and I actually learned a lot and I thought flashing lights and floaters were quite easy. It's the easiest thing to look out for. However, there was a lot of things that I didn't know about flashing lights and floaters and I'm going to share them with you. So today this video is going to be on eight points about flashing lights and floaters or eight facts that I did not know but now I know and I'm going to share them with you so hopefully we can spread the knowledge and good vibes. So the first point is that flashing lights can be caused by optic neuritis. So also just apologize if I come across a bit dense because I think maybe some of the stuff I should have known but I don't know but you know I know it now so we're moving on so anyway flashing lights can be caused by optic neuritis so you can get photopsia which is just a fancy word for flashing lights on eye movement and you get retrobulbar pain so when you are asking a patient if if a patient presents with flashing lights and you ask have you got black or white floating spots, um, have you got shadow to cross vision? So now I always ask, have you got any pain on eye movement? Because that rules out optic neuritis. So I then went on, on a bit of a sidetrack to learn a bit about optic neuritis. So when you get optic neuritis, some of the symptoms you get are blind spots or poor vision in one eye. Um, you can also get color vision issues and visual field issues as well can be severely affected and of course you get pain on eye movement so if a patient presents with flashing lights and pain on eye movement just ask them those questions and it narrows down your choice 
optic neuritis also gets worse within a few days so it peaks about two weeks and then it slowly improves um, so it takes about four to six weeks to improve and it's actually also the first sign of multiple sclerosis so 70 percent of people who have multiple sclerosis will get optic neuritis at some point so multiple sclerosis is when you have degeneration of the myelin sheath which is around the nerve fiber layer so the myelin sheath this just gets me so gassed because it throws me back to my A-level biology days, which I love. Um, the myelin sheath allows the um, a- the action potential to jump faster down the optic, n- not the optic nerve, all the nerves in the body. And so you can react to stimuli quickly. For example, if you touch a hot pan or something like that, your action potentials happen quickly to your brain so that you can pull back from it. Now, another really interesting fact about multiple sclerosis and optic neuritis is that 25% of people who have multiple sclerosis the first sign of their multiple sclerosis or MS was optic neuritis so that's really interesting now when you have optic neuritis you'll get referred to have blood tests done MRI your visual vote potential will be measured as well Um, but multiple sclerosis is not the only reason why you get optic neuritis so there are other reasons and treatment you can get treated or sometimes people just leave it so treatment can be done with steroids to reduce damage on the optic nerve because if you leave it for four to six weeks it's possible that it could damage the optic nerve and cause irreversible loss of vision so I've seen multiple patients where they've had optic neuritis in one eye not because of MS just because of randomly it just happened well, not randomly, I'm sure there's a reason behind it. And their visions have dropped. So they were 6'6 and now they're 6'60. So you want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Now, the second thing that I didn't know about flashing lights and floaters, which I'm actually quite embarrassed to say, is this terminology that we use called vitreous sinoresis. Now, I feel like I fully should have known what this is. This is quite embarrassing. Um, So we know that when we're younger, the vitreous, which is a gel in the eye, is very jelly-like. And as we get older, um, that gel goes under some changes and becomes more watery. And so the solids in it, which are collagen elements, separate from the liquid. And that's where we get floaters. So that process is called vitreous sinoresis because sometimes you can get some patients presenting with a sudden onset of floaters. And I've noticed this a lot in the lockdown period. People are coming in complaining of floaters so much. They're like, I was sitting at home and I'm starting to see these floaters. And the only reason why, the only thing I can put this down to is the fact that people are bored at home to the point that they're just noticing things that have always been there. So that's what I think is happening, but you have to investigate every one of these patients as to protocol, and that is to dilate them. So this process of when a patient starts to notice more floaters is just the vitreous changing, and that is called vitreous sinoresis. And this is very different to posterior vitreous detachment, which is when the vitreous detaches away from the retina. So it pulls away from the retina. So how to determine the difference between vitreous sinoresis and posterior vitreous detachment is that you need to look for the posterior hyaloid membrane, which is is the back of the vitreous which is peeling away from the which peeling away from the macula and that's done by looking at the OCT mainly but you can also see it when you're um, examining the vitreous with Volk and a dilated swimming so I slit lamp dilation um, and also for PVD you're just looking for the wise ring so if they have not got a wise ring they have not had a PVD basically it's pretty much like that which I didn't know so that was interesting to know now the third thing I learned was atropic round holes so atropic round holes well I didn't learn about them I knew about them however 
atopic round holes are causes of atrophy so they're very common in myopes because myopes retinas are stretched and when I'm explaining this to a patient I just say to them imagine your retina is a piece of cling film because your eyeball's bigger the cling film is stretched more so you're more likely to get holes in it because the cling film stretches and breaks and atopic round holes are when you get breaks in that cling film or you get breaks in that retina and one in 100,000 cause retinal detachments. So that's what I learned. If one atropic round hole looks old, you don't really need to refer it if you feel comfortable. Now, the fourth thing that I learned was in regards to Schaefer's sign. So I've always known since university that Schaefer's signs are the ride or die sign for retinal detachment. So you don't need to see the detachment, but if you see Schaefer's sign, like you have to send them to A&E. And a patient who presents with Schaefer's sign they have a 88% chance of having a retinal tear um but one thing that I did learn with Cambalagan that I wasn't taught at university was we always get taught that Schaefer's sign is in the anterior vitreous but when you actually think about it why would it just be in the anterior vitreous so Cambalagan told us that the anterior vitreous is you don't just need to examine the anterior vitreous you need to examine the whole vitreous to look for Schaefer signs okay and the more Schaefer signs you see the more bigger the tear is and the less Schaefer sign you see the less bigger the tear is so I have this fear that I miss Schaefer signs because I've never ever seen it so doing this training I mean he, he shows you a video of it but apparently it's really obvious but I don't know I've never actually seen it and I just have this big fear that I'm gonna miss it so that's one thing to be vigilant about is that to not just check the anterior chamber, the anterior chamber, to just check the anterior vitreous, to check the whole vitreous. Now, the fifth thing I learned about flashing lights and floaters is in regards to the drugs that we use to dilate people's eyes. So when you're at university, you learn about all these drugs you have to learn about when they you know how long they take to work their side effects and you know do they sting or do they not and there's like oh there's just so much you have to learn but when you actually get into practice the only drug you use is tropicamide one percent or for me the only drug i've ever used is tropicamide one percent and even at university we only ever use this drug however apparently according to cambaligan he said that this drug is not good enough to create the big enough dilation that they get in hospitals so when you've got a MEX contract or if you're in practice looking at someone who's got flashing lights and floaters, you need to do exactly the same level of examination that, you, that would be done in a hospital. Because if you don't and you miss something, that's not good. They went on to say that trabecomide does not cause a good enough dilation and that you need to combine it with phenylephrine 2.5%. Now in practice we never use phenylephrine 2.5% but if you're running a MEX clinic that sees a lot of flashing lights and floaters it's worth having that dilating drug as well because we need to create we need to get the same amount of dilation that you'd get in a hospital so that we can do a good enough examination because if we can't then we miss something and that's not good. And then my actual nightmare comes into full play. So, um, so there's also some rumours, well not rumours, some fears that phenylephrine is actually not used for everyone because of its causes and because of its issues that it has with people with cardiovascular problems. However, a couple studies were done here and there and basically it said that you don't have to worry about that, it's, it's fine, there's no issues. So no, there's no evidence to prove that phenylephrine causes cardiovascular issues okay now the third or not a third 
I'm on the sixth point was regards to narrow angles. So you guys know better than me that when we dilate, you need to check pressures and check angles. Now, everyone normally has around grade three, grade four angles. When someone presents with a smaller angle, alarm bells go off in my head. But I've always assumed that regardless of how narrow their angles are, unless they're shot, unless they're shut and the pressures are high, you just don't dilate them. Because although dilating can produce an angle closure glaucoma, it is really, really unlikely. However, if someone has narrow angles, you are well, 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 well within your right to send them to the hospital. And then the ophthalmologist will do gonio and decide whether or not they are good enough to dilate. So this was interesting for me because I always thought that if you have a flashing lens or floaters patient and you don't dilate them and you send them straight to the hospital because you're not sure if you're going to cause angle closure, they would just turn their noses up to you and be like oh god these optometrists just don't know what they're doing but that was nice to know that it's okay to do that because at the end of the day you don't want to cause angle closure in someone even though it's very unlikely but yeah that was just good to know okay now the seventh point the penultimate point is the Volk lens that we have to use when we're examining the vitreous so my ride or die Volk lens is the 90 diopter and I think most people have that as their I keep saying ride or die don't I okay anyway my go-to Volk lens is the 90 diopter because it's a little run trick pony you know it's good for the macula the disc everything and Volk lenses are expensive especially when you have to shell out for them as a pre-reg so you don't want to be out there buying four or five Volk lenses because that's a whole grand of equipment sitting on your desk do you know what I mean so you don't want that so he also said that the, the best lens to use is not a 90 diopter so do not use a 90 diopter when you are looking at the periphery you need to use the best lens is a digital wide field digital wide field is the best lens now I'm going to tell you a bit of a story about this lens well it's not actually that interesting I'm making it out like it is but it isn't so when you are in your second year of university you get advised to buy your own optometry equipment so that is your retinoscope and your keeler or it doesn't have to be keeler your retinoscope and your ophthalmoscope and you also get your budgie stick your cover you know your budgie stick your um your little black guitar cover thingy and it's a really expensive procedure so you spend about I would say about a grand 1,200 300 pounds and but when I was about to check out it was like for an extra 90 pounds you could add this amazing Volk lens into your package and I was like you know I'm I'm just about to spend about 1,300 pounds on equipment let me just add the Volk lens for another 90 quid it's not really going to cause any harm now because my bill is so fat anyway so I get this Volk lens and I'm really gassed I'm like yeah I got a Volk lens for 90 quid they're normally like super super expensive and then I go to university and I'm in one of my clinics and the um, supervisor says oh the reason why they tried to sell them to you is because these Volk lenses the digital wide field lenses are really bad and they had excess stock so they just thought they'd try and mug off the university students and just sell it to them and I was really annoyed and I and after that I never used that lens because I was just just told that it was a really bad lens however after I did this e-learning online and he um Cam Balligan said that it was one of the best lenses to use I've started using it when I see flashing lights and floaters and it's a really good lens for um your field of view is huge compared to a 90 which I was previously using it is really really good so if you got mugged off and you 
but you got um, played into buying one of those lenses, then, hun, you're actually winning in real life because use it. Trust me, it's a really good lens. Now, the final thing that I learnt in this little video, which I want to share with you all that I didn't know, was red flaggy type situations to look out for when you are doing, or when you're looking flashing lights and floaters. So the first one is when it comes to a patient who presents with asteroid hylosis. So a patient comes in with flashing lights and floaters and you examine their vitreous and you see all these amazing, glittery, beautiful things floating around in their vitreous. And that is, of course, calcium because of... Um, I don't actually know why it's in there, but anyway, it's calcium It's calcium in the um, vitreous, and it is actually really pretty. I remember when I first saw it, and I was looking at it like, wow, I was mesmerized. It was really pretty. However, patients who have asteroid hylosis are normally asymptomatic. So when they come in presenting a flashing lights and floaters, you cannot assume that their flashing lights are because of the asteroid hylosis, because it's an easy way to to say, okay, yeah, it's because you've got these things floating around, but in actual fact, you could be missing a retinal tear or a PVD, so you have to do the full procedure, even though when a patient has astrotylosis, it is hard to see the retina, but you have to do the whole procedure. And the second thing that I learned, the second red flaggy situation, is that if someone has a vitreous hemorrhage, so often when someone has a vitreous hemorrhage, if it is really bad you can't see the retina now normally people who have vitreous hemorrhages are the diabetics so if they do not have proliferative diabetes then you have to send them as an emergency referral for a retinal tear even though you can't see one so a patient comes in they are not diabetic and they have a vitreous hemorrhage you do all your tests as best as you can you might not be able to see the retina, but you still have to send them same day for a suspect tear. And then when you, when the patient gets to the hospital, they'll have, I think it's an ultrasound and I don't know what happens, but do you know what they, the, we've done our bit basically. So that is all from today's episode. I hope that was interesting. If you guys are low key undercover geeks like me, then you would have found that really interesting. And I hope that the eight things that I have mentioned can be used in your practice and you can keep it in mind for the future. And of course, I will link the video that I watched in the description box below. So if you want to watch it and get that little CT point, then you can get it. And yeah, so I hope that was helpful. So you guys know the drill. Make sure you like and follow on all the social platforms on at the underscore 2020 podcast. And hopefully catch you on the next episode, guys. Bye.